For the reading of his word, Revelation 2, verse 18, Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adulteries with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to those that rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed in pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son, we ask that you'd help us as we continue now in our worship by giving our attention, our heart, soul, and mind to the truth of the Word of God. And Lord, we expectantly ask that by your Spirit's ministry, that everything your Spirit spoke and recorded in these words, that he would now take and apply to our hearts so that we can hear what it is that you want to say to us by the voice of your Spirit this day. And we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. <clears throat> you know, I recently have tried to make a little bit and I stress the word a little bit, of an adjustment in some of my dietary habits for a particular purpose. And in doing that, I have found that the things that I would prefer myself not to be eating and digesting, that if those things are in my household, it makes the process a whole lot more difficult. That if there is the allowance to partake of something, my ability to refrain from partaking it isn't always as successful as it would like to be. You know, the Bible also tells us in a spiritual sense, Paul says in the book of Romans, that we're to make no provision for the flesh. The idea is that if we make a provision, that is we provide an opportunity to engage in some area of our sinful fleshly nature, God understands that we should not be surprised if we then partake of the provision in front of us, because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, right? And so we understand sometimes the greatest success to some degree, helping in the battle to maybe overcome something, is to remove opportunity. You know, I often say before, many times in counseling situations when I'm trying to draw an analogy, I'll say to people, look, if you never walk up close to the edge of a cliff, you can't fall off. It's not possible. <laughs> but if you get close to the edge or you go near the edge or you say, oh, I can handle looking over the edge, well, you're just putting yourself in a position all the more by making an allowance that you may accidentally fall in that situation. And look, in regards to morality and spirituality, it is never healthy to make allowances for compromise. And in this next letter that Jesus writes, as he's recording these seven messages to seven churches, Jesus is addressing here making allowances for compromise. You'll notice that this is our Lord's longest letter to the seven churches, and it appears it's actually the most severe in the tone that he takes with any of the seven churches. So he has the most to say, 
and he appears the most severe in his tone when he is speaking to those who are making, and please hear the word, allowances for compromise. Not just compromising, but making allowances for compromise. He's very severe. Now remember, though there were plenty of congregations in that day available for Jesus to select from and to address directly, as we said when we started these letters, Jesus specifically chose these seven unique fellowships, handpicked, and he addresses them in the order that he does because of the different, no doubt, conditions they were in, <coughs> excuse me, as congregations, understanding that the conditions they were in, with purposeful intention, he could address with helpful instruction because they were a thorough representation, if you would, of all different types of conditions that churches and Christians could be in and would be in throughout the ages of the church. And so Jesus addressing them in some ways gives a thorough representation of the church as a whole and a well thorough representation of different subjects that we would benefit from instruction of Jesus talking to us about if we find ourselves in those conditions as a Christian or as a church. And here he addresses specifically certain things. Look with me again back in verse 18. He begins in this letter saying to the angel or to the messenger, the angelos, the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, he's going to say these things. Now, this church located in the city of Thyatira, and we know Thyatira was not a large or a significant city in the ancient world. It wasn't like in Athens or some of these other, you know, more famous, prominent cities like Ephesus, the first letter that we looked at. But Thyatira was located on a trade route, and it was more famous for anything else than what we refer to as its trade guilds. Now, when we talk about trade guilds, what we would understand that as in our day and age, as labor unions. That's basically what trade guilds were. They were like labor unions in the ancient culture, and there were guilds for those who worked in linen and wool and leather and pottery and bronze and even tanners. They were also known in Thyatira as the center for a dyeing industry. They had great manufacturing done in that area. And they were famously known for a rare purple dye, which came from a small shellfish, which was extremely sought after and very expensive and used in people's clothing. In Acts chapter 16, you might remember that there, there's a woman named Lydia, and it says she was a seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. So Thyatira was a manufacturing location, and historians tell us that this sense of, if you would, obligation to belong to one of these trade guilds, whatever your craft particular trade was, the sense of pressure and obligation to belong to one of these trade guilds was very strong. In fact, historians tell us of Thyatira that a merchant or trader could not even expect to make money, let alone prosper in any way, unless they belong to one of these trade guilds or one of these labor unions. Now, you might say, what's the big deal? Well, the problem with participating in one of those trade guilds was what that also involved and what that meant that you participated in. Because these particular trade guilds were not just professional organizations, they also had a patron deity that they gave allegiance and worship to that represented their guild. Each guild selected their own patron deity or idol to, in a sense, bring prosperity as they believed or blessing to their particular line of trade work. So these trade guild meetings we know that they would host, they would meet in the temple of their particular god. They would involve communal, large communal feasts with meat and wine offered and dedicated to the idol of their choice, whatever god or goddess was their patron deity. And worse than that, there were sensual practices that would take place after these communal feasts would go on, which were very sensual in nature. They had temple priests and priestesses where the worshipers would then engage in sexual relations with these priests and priestesses as a way to consummate their commitments. And the idea behind it was to believe to curry the favor and the fertility 
from the God or the goddess who would cause your business to prosper and to be fertile in your endeavors in a sense to cause it to be more prolific and participating in these trade guilds, as you can see and understand, and the practices of idolatry and sexual immorality would cause a real dilemma if you were a Christian. Because now you're forced into a situation where you need to work your craft, you need to make money, you need your business to function and to operate, you need to employ your trade, yet those who are Christians had a struggle with deciding between doing something in moral and spiritual compromise because of what these trade guilds represented, which made it very hard in Thyatira for Christians to be able to work their businesses or, or to even sometimes find work at all, let alone prosper if they were not a part of the, the guild or that labor unit. So Christians often had to choose between allegiance and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ or making allowances for compromise based upon what it took to be a part of the trade guild and therefore to have to compromise their Christian belief, their Christian behavior, and their moral ethics by living sinfully to participate in what the guilds did. So it was a major issue for the church of Thyatira who was struggling with toleration with moral and spiritual compromise. And Jesus, knowing this, now speaks strongly against this activity that was going on among some who were in this church in compromise. He goes on in verse 18 saying to them, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and has feet like fine brass. Now, again, given what's happening in each church, as we've been seeing, Jesus, remember, he always reaches back to Revelation chapter one, where there was that glorified representation of the Lord that John saw. And he saw Jesus in his glorified, triumphant condition in the eternal realm. And Jesus draws different aspects of his nature or some aspect of one of his attributes from that vision. And he introduces himself to each one of these churches in direct connection to what was going on in that church. And here, Jesus introduces himself to the church of Thyatira by saying these things says, first of all, he refers to himself clearly as the Son of God. That is a representation of his deity or divinity as the one true God. That he is the supreme ruler, that he is the one who is Lord over all and who exclusively deserves our worship alone. The only one who is worthy of worship and should be obeyed and served as the Son of God and the Savior, and to give worship and allegiance to any other deity would be akin to spiritual adultery. It would be betrayal to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And this church was struggling with true and exclusive worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were tolerating allegiance to other people, even within the church, to leaders within the church, as well as struggling with allegiance to Jesus and giving, in a sense, dishonor to the Lord at the cost of being fully devoted to him. And seeing what was going on, this diversion in this system of worship became so unhealthy, it required Jesus to give them a strong reminder to basically remind them, I am the son of God. Meaning you have lost focus upon me. You've given it to a person, you've given it to a system, but you've lost connection with giving full honor and devotion to me. He secondly says to them in verse 18 that he was one who has eyes like a flame of fire, that vision like a burning hot mighty refiner's fire. It speaks of Jesus's, we might say, all penetrating gaze. If you like superheroes or when you were a kid or cartoons, you remember sometimes people had that X-ray laser vision. And the idea is that just that, that fiery vision. And the idea here picturing Jesus is in the sense that he can see through all cover-ups, that Jesus sees everything. He not only sees behavior, he not only sees what goes on in private that no one else but a person sees and knows, even if no other person knows, he sees everything. 
He sees the hearts and the minds of men. We saw as we were reading, even down further in this letter, where Jesus in verse 23 says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts to give to each one according to his work. So again, nothing can be hidden from Jesus' gaze. He is fully aware of all of our actions and our attitudes. With eyes like fire, he can see and penetrate through any cover-up of mankind, and he also announces himself as the one who has feet that are like fine brass or bronze. And remember, brass or bronze in the Bible is always representative of judgment. Remember in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the temple, there was the bronze altar, which was where the sacrifices were made, which was where the fire of God's judgment would be meted out against the sin and the rebellion of mankind against him. So Jesus' bronze feet here are a picture of our Lord taking a firm stand in perfect judgment against the wrongdoing and the sin and the compromise that was not only going on in this church, but also being tolerated in their midst. So it's Jesus taking a strong stand against what they're doing and his authority opposing all of the compromise and standing in strong judgment against the things that were happening that were dishonorable to him. So we have a picture here of Jesus in verse 18. He gives this picture of himself as holy, almighty God with fire in his eyes, using all of heaven's authority to stand in perfect, severe judgment against what's going on in a church. Not exactly the way you want Jesus to greet your fellowship. But understand, and let me just reiterate again, if you hear nothing else this morning, we read through these things this morning, and remember, Jesus isn't saying these things to people in the world. He's saying these things to the church. This is a letter to a congregation of the Lord's people that he saw this condition amongst them. Now, before Jesus rebukes their error quite strongly and specifically, he does, as he does in other fellowships, commend them with some kindness for some of the things that they were doing that he was pleased with and that he was appreciative of. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service and faith, and your patience. The idea is enduring perseverance. And also, as for your works, the last are more than the first. So Jesus knew of their works. That is that they were a productive church, you might say. They were a church body who did many good works. There was lots of acts of service. They put a strong emphasis upon serving people. They did a lot of good things in their efforts to, to, to serve humanity. They were a church that had love. So Jesus said, I see that you're a very caring church, that you are kind. You're very giving. You're very generous in the things that you do. He saw that they were a church that was exercising a degree of faith, that is, they trusted the Lord to work in certain ways. They were taking ventures of faith. They were trying things. They were stepping out, trusting the Lord in love, trying to work and help people in different ways in society and among their community. And he commends them as well for their patience. And the idea there again is to their perseverance under the weight of challenges against them. And Jesus says in light of what they were doing, as for your works, the last are even more than the first. The language implies you're always doing more and more. The idea is that they were ever increasing in their efforts of servanthood and good works. They were service and ministry minded and Jesus appreciated they were productively serving. He appreciated that they cared about and loved people, that they were exercising faith and patiently persevering, and even more than that, that they seemed to just keep expanding, that they were always trying to do more things and greater works and help in greater ways. Verse 20, he then goes on to say, nevertheless, which is Jesus' way of saying, despite all those things, though you're doing those things well, nevertheless, despite that, he says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So Jesus now expresses he was strongly opposed 
to what they were allowing in regards to permitting this woman, Jezebel, to lead, to have authority, and to teach and seduce his servants. Notice, the source of corruption and compromise in the church of Thyatira, Jesus identifies right out of the gate, was the very strong influence of this particular woman, who Jesus identifies there in verse 20 as that woman Jezebel. Now, let me just say, I think it's highly unlikely that that is her real name. I believe Jesus is using that as a name that he is ascribing to her to, in a sense, label her with a descriptive assessment of what he saw of her life and her function and the things that she was doing. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe her real name was Jezebel, but there are certain names in human history that kind of get tarnished because of who the person maybe once once are represented, like Judas Iscariot. 25 years, I've never dedicated a Judas on a Sunday morning. The name's just, you know, it, it kind of has that resonation to it. Jezebel. You know, there are certain names because of what they're connected to that people tend, mm, don't, I don't know if I want to call him that all the, every day. Or, and, and, and I believe that Jesus here is more giving this as if you would a descriptive title identifying this woman as a woman who represented a Jezebel-like spirit. Remember, Jezebel from the Old Testament was someone we know who functioned in a particular way. She shows up in 1 Kings, and, and this is what we know of Jezebel. She was the daughter of the Sidonians. She worshipped Baal. She was into pagan idolatry. And then, of course, remember, she became married through political alliances to King Ahab in Israel's history. Now, Ahab at that time period was already the most probably wicked king that Israel had ever seen and then he married a sidekick who just threw gasoline on the fire. He then marries this woman Jezebel, and his marriage to Jezebel, because of her very overbearing personality, created way more problems than Ahab was already causing during the time of his reign and rulership. She began controlling him because Ahab, as we see him in the scriptures, was a very weak and passive man. And she was very strong and overbearing in her temperament and personality, and in a sense, became the true ruler behind the throne, and was basically the one who was steering the ship, even if he was sitting on the throne like a puppet, she was the one steering everything that was going on. And we know from what the Bible records to us of wicked Jezebel in the Old Testament that she was very aggressive and very assertive in her temperament and her nature. She was the true authority behind the throne. She introduced Baal worship and many other pagan practices in Israel. She instituted temples and shrines to other gods. She established her own priesthood, the Bible tells us, a system that consisted of at least hundreds, we know from scripture, at least hundreds of prophets and priests to Baal. She sought to remove and to replace with aggression the true prophets of the Lord, the true priests of the Lord, to basically aggressively promote what she wanted. Remember, she was killing off prophets and priests in the nation of Israel. She killed a man like Naboth, we're told in the Old Testament, basically because she wanted his land and because she could not get her will and she wanted that land for herself and her husband, she was willing to murderously end the life of a particular man. And she brought many pagan practices, and the result of that led the nation of Israel astray spiritually in a really bad way during the season of her leadership. And it was this spirit of Jezebel, if you would, that Jesus saw had now become the prominent issue as a system among this particular church, a corrupt system in the church of Thyatira, this Jezebel-like woman was leading the way, causing much of their problems in their midst. And notice one of the things that Jesus tells us about this woman in the church of Thyatira is that she was a self-proclaimed spokesman 
or a self-proclaimed, if you would, self-appointed authority or leader. Look what Jesus says of her. He says, verse 20, you have and you allow that woman Jezebel, and Jesus says, who calls herself a prophetess. Notice, who calls herself a prophetess. Jesus is drawing attention to there that she was a self-appointed, self-proclaimed authority or spokesman acting like a prophetess in the church. Now, we know a prophet or prophetess, and there are legitimate prophets and prophetesses show up in the Bible. They are individuals who become a spokesman for God. We understand that's what a prophet or a prophetess does. There's someone who's given power by the Holy Spirit to share and say what God wants spoken. Now, Jesus here acknowledges that she calls herself a prophetess, inferring that's her idea, not mine. Jesus is saying, I don't see her in such a role. She may authorize herself in that manner. She may have appointed herself in that role. She may even be functioning in that role but as the chief shepherd and overseer of the church, I didn't appoint that. I didn't authorize that, and I didn't assign her to that. She took that authority and that assignment upon herself. Jesus saw her operating in that way, and he says there that she is, look what he says, teaching and seducing my servants. Again, Jesus is a little bit jealous over his servants because he's the one who shed his blood for his church. And he says, I like to direct my servants and I like to direct the person and vessel and voice through whom I would appoint as my under shepherd to direct my servants. And I didn't appoint her. She appointed herself to that role. Jesus here is wanting them to see and to understand that this woman was not appointed by him to teach or to lead or to speak with the authority that she was. She was doing that on her own, and it was harming clearly. We can see it was harming the health of the church. She was teaching and seducing them into sinful compromise and to spiritual adultery and idolatry. In fact, over in verse 24, remember Jesus, as he's talking there, said that this woman who had been promoting her doctrines was taking people into, look what he says, verse 24, the depths of Satan. That's pretty bad. That's where she was leading through her influence with this group. And Jesus identifies in verse 20 that what she was doing was teaching his servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So her influence and her ideas and her allowance to have a platform of authority and to speak in the way that she was to the church, according to Jesus, was guiding people into immoral living and into idolatry. Somehow, according to Jesus in verse 20 there, she was indicating through her teaching that it was permissible to live in spiritual compromise, that somehow it was acceptable to be involved in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols that was happening in these guilds that some Christians were apparently saying, according to what she says, it's okay to be doing this. According to her doctrine, it's okay. We're, God makes a concession for us. He knows we have to work. He knows we need money. And so some of her teaching and doctrine somehow was teaching the Lord's servants that it was okay to do these things that were clearly not okay with Jesus. And notice Jesus' rebuke in verse 20 to the leadership of the church at Thyatira and its members is very simply this. You allow her. You see what he says there in verse 20? He says, because you allow her to do that. Jesus is there rebuking the weak leadership of this church by allowing this wrong thing to go on with this woman who he refers to as Jezebel, who was operating in this way. Jesus was greatly displeased that they were not addressing this with any conviction for what is right before the Lord, that no one had enough love for Jesus and honor for Jesus and enough spiritual backbone to stand up and say, 
I don't care who you think you are or what you call yourself on the authority of Jesus. We don't agree with that. And we're not going to allow that. And we're going to stand for what Jesus wants and not for what any human being has an idea about. And it was this weak leadership of allowing this that Jesus was almost, it seems, more upset about. You're allowing that woman to do those things, Jesus says. You're allowing this false doctrine to be taught. And look, even as weak leadership was connected to the situation with Jezebel in the Old Testament, that Ahab was a weak, passive husband and a weak, passive leader with no backbone, and that's what allowed Jezebel to be prolific in her influence in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus says it's happening again now in this system in Thyatira. Once again, you're allowing this, so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, if none of you have a backbone, then pardon me, step out of my way, because I'm the chief shepherd and the overseer of all the souls of my servants, and so I'm going to say a little something about that. And thus we have the letter of Thyatira, because Jesus now expresses his voice. And notice what he says to this woman with this Jezebel-like spirit doing this. He says, verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. So notice, she was not only endorsing this, apparently teaching this and seducing others, but she was clearly participating to some degree. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, particularly of her own sexual immorality, sexual sin, and she did not repent. So clearly this woman, Jesus wants us to understand, she, she was not, please don't misunderstand, she was not just a misguided soul. Don't get that idea. Oh, and he's being awful strong with her. I mean, she was just a misguided, naive, gullible, confused, nice lady in the church. And, and well, man, that's not the case. Jesus wants us to clearly understand here He's previously spoken to this woman through his spirit's voice for a season and time past. He had offered this woman opportunity to see the wrong thing that she was doing, to feel convicted at the sin that she was engaging in, the way that she was conducting herself, the things that she was doing. He says, I gave her time to repent, he says, meaning that Jesus is saying, I've already spoken to her directly about this numerous times. I've tried to get her to recognize the error of her own way, to do what's right. I've given adequate opportunity to see what's wrong. I've confronted her error directly, and I gave her time to repent. But Jesus says, verse 21, she did not. She wouldn't. The idea here is Jesus is conveying this was obstinate, refusal. It was denying the voice of the Lord because of wanting to pursue self-will. It was rejecting the voice of the Spirit, saying what you are doing is not right by saying, but it feels so right to me. And it was a continuous wrestling back and forth, and Jesus was giving opportunity to repent, but in stubbornness and rebellion, she ignored not just people, she ignored the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and in her rebellious and wrong ways, refusing to stop, turn, or change, as Jesus asked, Jesus says, she's pushing a limit here. Look, I think the application for us, Jesus always graciously grants us a window of time to repent from error in all of our lives. And thank goodness he's gracious and merciful and patient, yet that freedom and that opportunity to have a window of time to repent from any sin or wrongdoing, understand it's not an unlimited time. It's not an unlimited time. The Bible says that the Lord's Spirit won't strive with man forever. He gives an opportunity. He gives time to repent. And after a fair and reasonable time, Jesus, with perfect accuracy, can see our heart in ongoing rebellion, and he is God himself can make a righteous, gracious, fair determination, I gave you time to repent, and you didn't. So now, we're going to have to do the woodshed thing. Now we're going to have to get a little more severe. Now there's going to have to be a little bit of powerful interaction, and if we continually avoid the merciful voice of the Lord, at some point we offer him no other recourse, just like a parent 
than to get way more severe and to bring about a degree of judgment or punishment and chastisement to some degree. Verse 22, Jesus says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know, as he brings this strong disciplinary action, that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your work. So with severity now, Jesus pronounces that he will strongly judge this sinful compromise that he saw going on that was stubbornly being persisted in with refusal to change, with refusal to turn and to stop and put an end to. And because both sexual sin, which is what's described, and spiritual adultery is what was happening, Jesus refers to her judgment in the realm of the bed. Because there was spiritual adultery and sexual sin where intimacy and adultery transpires, Jesus uses this image of a bed, and he says, and I will now cast her into a sick bed. And the image seems to be there, confining her to a bed due to some illness. You know, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11 refers to a similar ideas where there's sin among the church that's unaddressed, and that at times Jesus, 1 Corinthians 11 describes, may choose on occasion to use illness and even death as a consequence for sinful behavior among his people. Now listen, let's be very clear. Though all illness is not caused by sin, that's, that's unsound doctrine. Not all illness, all disease, all sickness is the result of sin. The Bible doesn't teach that. But that being said, Jesus can use any method that he chooses as the Son of God to do whatever it takes in all of our lives or to endeavor to obtain someone's repentance. And to obtain someone's repentance, if he sees fit that he has to disrupt someone's health to strongly convey a message to them, he can choose whatever funnel he wants to bring his actions and his works to come to pass. And in this situation, it seems that's what it was. In this situation, Jesus uses this method to intervene to stop something that's harmful and wrong. And look, if Jesus sees something that's harmful and wrong, if he's pushed to the place where he sometimes can be pushed to, he may choose to say, listen, whatever it takes to stop that harmful influence, that unhealthy thing, I'm just going to do it. And here he tells this woman that she would be cast into a sickbed, and he says those who commit adultery with her, now again, perhaps again, referring maybe to the spiritual adultery in connection to kind of this picture of being unfaithful to Jesus and the sexual sin, he says those who commit adultery, participate in this with her, will be cast into great tribulation. The idea is severe, deep suffering unless they repent of participating in this with her. And then he says, verse 25, and I will kill her children with death. Now, can't be certain again. I can't speak for the Lord, but very likely that he's referring to killing her children with death as the idea of her spiritual offspring, as the result of this spiritual adultery and the spiritual offspring being produced from that, what that spiritual adultery was giving birth to of those who followed this woman's ways. And look, we can fully understand, we know that both sin and false teaching give birth to really horrible things in people's lives. And the things that both sin and false teaching give birth to many a times have deadly consequences. And so very likely Jesus is referring to this. The main thing he wants them to grasp by this severe judgmental act to stop what's going on and to bring repentance where needed is he says, verse 23, I want all the churches to know that all churches would come to know. The idea is Jesus says, if this happens in any situation or among any congregation, I reserve the freedom and may this be a clear example that all churches would know that I will give to each one of you according to your works. That Jesus, see, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He's an equal opportunity savior. He's an equal opportunity judge and disciplinarian. 
He will deal with all of us according to our own lives and not to say, oh, that person, but to say, Lord, help me to take that to heart. I don't want to push you to a place where you have to get extremely severe to try and bring about my repentance because I won't turn from wrongdoing or to stop something that's unhealthy because he has to become very strong in a powerful intervention. Jesus says, verse 24, now to you who's, I say, and to those who rest in Thyatira, those who don't have this doctrine, the ideas of this Jezebel-like doctrinal spirit that was going on in the church, who've not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So Jesus now begins to offer some encouragement to those believers in the church of Thyatira who did not hold to the doctrinal beliefs of this Jezebel-like spirit and idea operating in the church, but stood in opposition to what was going on and to this wrong doctrine, and they were holding to God's word as an anchor for truth. Notice Jesus refers to, again, as I said earlier, those who had come under the influence of this doctrinal idea and belief system. Jesus refers to those who were doing that as those who were being plunged. Look what he says, verse 24, into the depths of Satan plunged into the depths of Satan. The idea is they were lowering their beliefs from the high standard of Scripture and saying instead that instead of God's word having the highest authority among Christians in the church and saying, nevertheless, this is what the Scripture says, that they were lowering their standards and plunging downward, sinking into Satan's trap. And what is Satan's trap? that through his lying voice, through subtle, spiritual, cultural, masterful deception to pollute and destroy the true church through the method of compromise and lies. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders with all unrighteous deception. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells us that in the last days, there will be doctrines, ideas, teachings, church systems, ways that churches operate that are doctrines stemming from demons. That is, they have diabolical origins. They're not from the word of God. And this group of believers, thankfully, some of them, Jesus commends them, hey, have not descended into doing this and participating in what was really being wrongly promoted, this diabolical demonic doctrine, saying that it's okay to be a Christian and go to those trade guild meetings and have sexual immorality and live in sexual sin. That's okay. God will make an allowance for you. Or it's okay to be a Christian and to keep living in idolatry and give your allegiance to other things. And look, to say you can be a Christian and it's okay to live in conscious, open, willful sin that's a satanic idea, and that's what Jesus is drawing attention to here. And that's why he says to those who are opposing this, verse 25, but you hold fast what you have till I come. So Jesus says to those who truly knew the Lord and were not embracing this wrong theology, he says to you, listen, here's what I'm asking you. You hold fast. Hold the line, Jesus says. You hold the anchor and he encourages his faithful followers to remain committed without wavering and not to let themselves be persuaded by the ideas of this woman operating in the church or those who would embrace these cultural ideas or who are letting the outside world infiltrate the church and change the way that the church and Christians operated. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't be polluted by that. Don't be pressured by that. He says, you hold fast what you have till I come. The idea is till his return. Now, when Jesus says, hold fast in this way to his followers who are keeping his word and staying loyal to him as the son of God and the Lord over their lives and the chief shepherd in the church, Jesus says, you hold fast till I come. Do you know what that infers? What Jesus is inferring that there will be compromised systems of worship among the church collectively until the time that the Lord Jesus comes. That this problem in Thyatira would continue to be in existence 
until the day of the coming of the Lord. And as with the other seven churches, the conditions of this church of Thyatira, as we've been talking about, also, interestingly enough, uniquely represented a next stage in church history that was much like what you see foreshadowed in the church of Thyatira. And that would be a representation of what we call the Middle Ages, where there was the establishment in that time period from 600 AD to the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was the establishment of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church and the era of history and church history and much of what that introduced into the church, where they tried to combine pagan philosophy and heathen religious ideas with Christianity, and you had the establishment of many things that made the church, in many ways, become very unhealthy during the time of the Middle Ages. You add at that time period the establishment of an official priesthood, and then ultimately a pope as the head, not Jesus, the pope as the head of the church who his words are now infallible, not the son of God's. His words are infallible. And you had the institution of other things where communion and scripture was taken away from the worshipers of God's people. And in a sense, the authority of that was given to a religious elite saying, listen, you can't handle the scriptures. Only these people can handle the scriptures. It was a time period as they brought these things to pass, seducing and teaching wrong things, where things like purgatory and confession and buying of indulgences for compromise and sin was introduced into the church. It was sort of a enjoy now, pay later. You can compromise now, you can live sinful now, you can live immoral now, but here's a way through buying some indulgences or coming telling one of us the bad things you did in a box, you can enjoy now and just pay later. You can compromise and just atone for it yourself later on. And this became a very unhealthy thing, and this church system that Thyatira itself foreshadows led to much of what has brought some very confused, unhealthy ideas and a compromised system of worship that exists even to this day and will all the way to the day at the time that Jesus comes. Jesus says, you hold fast till I come. And he who overcomes, verse 26, he says, and keeps my works till the end. Again, he who overcomes, First John chapter 5, we overcome by faith. And by faith in the Son of God is the exclusive Savior. And keeping the works of Jesus, that is, working for him, bowing down to him until the day that he comes. Jesus' promise to him, to the overcomer, I will give the power over the nations. And then he quotes Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as also I have received from my Father. So Jesus assures his faithful followers that we will share in the reward, in the eternal dimension coming ahead of us, that we will share in the reward of ruling with him when he returns to bring his kingdom back to the earth. He quotes here from Psalm 2, which again was a messianic psalm describing the king coming in great righteousness and power and setting up his kingdom with strong authoritative reign in righteousness. Jesus will come back, set up his throne in Jerusalem, and will rule and reign, the Bible teaches, on earth for a thousand years a time period we refer to as the kingdom age or the millennium, and his righteousness in that time won't be an optional thing. There will be no toleration of compromise. It will be an enforced righteousness which no one in humanity can rebel against, and his faithful followers will return with him. You and I will come back with him as he sets up his reign, and it says here that when he's ruling with a rod of iron, it says, that he will give to you and I, his servants, power, verse 26, over the nations. That is, we will receive some of Jesus' authority to be in power to help enforce his righteous reign during the time of the kingdom age. Jesus also issues another promise, an eternal promise, verse 28, and I will give to him the morning star. Now, the morning star was always that star that represented the awareness of the dawning of a new day. That's what the morning star was. Now, here's what's interesting. In Revelation 22, 16, Jesus proclaims of himself, I am the bright and the morning star. 
So no doubt what Jesus is promising here, as he directly refers to himself as the morning star, is Jesus is encouraging his wearied servants who are trying to hold fast and resist compromise and stay devoted and remain faithful to him and to biblical Christianity and to the word of God and the honoring of the Lord Jesus Christ over any system of worship or any human religious figure. He's saying, listen, you hang in there, you stay faithful, you hold fast. I'm the morning star and I am coming soon. And there's going to come a day when the darkness of man's hour and man's day in the worldly systems that have been corrupting even my church, he says, I'm coming and I'm going to bring the dawning of a brand new day. And you don't have to try and bring the kingdom to pass on the earth. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's a very wrong thing we're trying to do today as well. Jesus says, I'm bringing a kingdom. Stop trying to set up a kingdom. Utopia on the earth will never happen. It's not supposed to happen. It will distract us from the biblical gospel purpose that the church is to have. The world is destined to fall apart. Jesus is bringing a kingdom. We want the kingdom that he's bringing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're longing for. And Jesus says, may he who have an ear to hear, spear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the idea there is that the reality is this. May we hear what the Spirit's saying, the presence of compromised religious and worship systems, sadly, will be in existence until the day that Jesus comes. But we are called to remain faithful. We were called to hold fast and I think sometimes Jesus says to us, maybe personally, maybe he says it at times to us as his church collectively, maybe the word of the Lord and the word from the Spirit of God that we need to hear maybe more often than not is that Jesus, perhaps would he say to any of us, you know that this is wrong, and yet you allow this to continue. And I have this against you. And perhaps would Jesus say to us in any of our lives, you know this is wrong. You know it. But you're allowing it to continue. You allow this to continue on. And perhaps Jesus would say, please don't force my hand to get severe. Address this. 